Welcome to the Historias podcast. I'm Foster Chamberlain. Last December, the Bulletin for Spanish and Portuguese Historical Studies released a new special issue entitled New Currents in Iberian History. Today, as part of our Historias for BSPHS series, I'm joined by the co-editors of that issue, Katie Harris, an Associate Professor of History at UC Davis, and Pamela Radcliffe, a Professor of History at UC San Diego, to discuss the observations they made about the state of the field of Iberian history while putting the issue together, including what boundaries and gaps in the field they observed and what new directions they see Iberian history taking now and in the future. So Katie and Pamela, welcome back to the podcast. Thank you. Thank you so much for having us. I'll start with you, Pamela. In the introduction to this special issue, the first boundary or division that you observe within the field of Iberian history is between scholars of Spanish and Portuguese history. Why do you think that specialists um, of Spain and Portugal talk to each other so little? It's a very good question, and it's one that we hadn't really anticipated before we started. Um, you know, we actually just sent out our, you know, we recruited our authors and and asked them to write articles about Iberian history and these different themes. And, you know, it wasn't really until we got back the first drafts and realized that most people had written articles about Spain, you know, and they hadn't, you know, they had really kind of not even considered, right, that Iberia meant that they needed to, you know, look at both Spain and Portugal. And so that actually led us to do some research and reading about, you know, the origins of that, you know, of that sort of lack of communication, which it really is not just an academic boundary, right? But it's um, a, a political, you know, nationalist um, boundary that goes back to, you could say, you know, the independence of Portugal almost, because from that point, you know, Portugal always felt like, you know, it had to defend its autonomy and independence, whereas Spain, you know, had this kind of residual sense that Portugal really belonged to Spain. And so there was always these kind of, you know, port the Spanish, um, side felt, you know, superior and dominant, and the Portuguese side had to be autonomous and independent. So, you know, how that translates, and then, of course, all of that is exacerbated by the two dictatorships in the 20th century, which are ultra-nationalist, you know, in terms of um, establishing their autonomy. And so partly as a result of that political, you know, autonomy and separation, there are different, you know, they, they really kind of get their historiographies are situated into different streams, you know, so Portugal has always been more Atlanticist, partly because of where it is, also the connection with Britain, um, you know, which was stronger. So, you know, there's this sort of Atlanticist connection there. And of course, Spanish historiography has mostly been inner looking, you know, and talking about the problems of Spain and, you know, why did Spain have a civil war and how did we get to where we are? And and if they're looking out, they're looking, you know, towards Western Europe, trying to be, you know, trying to sort of include themselves there. So, you know, there's these sort of big, you know, kind of historical structural origins. But then, you know, the upshot is that Spanish students don't study about Portuguese history. You know, Portuguese students don't study, you know, Spanish history. And there's very little comparative history. It's starting to change, but, you know, there's just not 
that much comparative history. Where we saw it happening in the modern period, I'll let you know Katie chime in in a second here, but where we saw, where I saw it in the modern period is, is actually in the regional universities like in Extremadura, you know, who are, that are border universities, right? <laughs> and they're setting up, you know, more kind of affiliations with um, Portuguese universities on the other side of the border. You know, and of course that makes perfect sense you know, that they're much more aware of, you know, that the fact that the historical developments, especially in economic or social or cultural history is not going to sort of stop at the border there. Mm -hmm. um, so Katie, I'll let you. I would, yeah, I would imagine, um, I'm just, you know, sort of jumping off of that. I don't recall off the top of my head, but I would imagine there are very similar kinds of impulses in other border areas, like for, I'm thinking of Galicia, right, where, where you would have a similar cross-border tendencies. The division between Spanish and Portuguese his historiography was genuinely surprising and, and shouldn't have been surprising to us, but we both sort of, you know, had to take a step back that it really wasn't something we had fully understood the depths of. And that that had we had sort of given this this charge to our to our contributors and hadn't really thought it through quite honestly and that that was that was really a, a, a fascinating way of, of coming up against this this real wall i don't necessarily think that these divisions are any they're often kind of inchoate right they're not fully articulated they're not spoken necessarily in some clear way but rather that that you can see see them in the kinds of orientations and the kinds of questions that are being asked. Pamela's right, I do think it is starting to change and that that's something that we can hope to see more of as we'll begin to maybe seem a little more cross-disciplinary and cross-border uh, training in, for, our, for our students. Um, but you know, for those of us who are not based in the Iberian Peninsula, right? There's other factors involved as well. Um, if you are coming out of North American educational systems, what is the language? Uh, if you take a foreign language, right? If you take a language other than English, what is that language? Well, it's probably going to be Spanish or French, right? Those are the two languages. The number of students in high school, for example, that are learning Portuguese is small. <laughs> mm -hmm. uh, and so that that actually is a real factor in terms of the the kind of linguistic preparation that that folks have when they come to the questions in front of them. So mm -hmm. it's it's complicated. Just to add to that, I mean, we we thought that you know this would be a great subject for a future um, you know special issue. Actually, it made me want to go back and look at the original conversations of the formation of you know our association, which mm -hmm. you know somehow assumed that you know Iberia was linked. Right? That's a that's implicit in in the um, in the very name and and of our association, but. You know, as long as I've been a, a member of it, there's always been kind of a tension. You know, you've got the Portuguese sessions and you've got the Spanish sessions. And, you know, there has tended to be a kind of a little bit of a firewall even within, you know. So I'm not sure we've ever had a conversation, you know, as an association about why did these two, you know, why did we put them together to begin with? You know, was this just 
just a sort of North American idea, you know, about Iberia as being a unity. So, you know, just kind of throwing out the, the meta questions, which I think uh, would be interesting for us to talk about as an association. Yeah, so I, I've observed that um, it seems to be a constant battle of the Portuguese historians not to be sort of overwhelmed by all, by all the historians of Spain. It sometimes be, you know, 90% of the of the panels, uh, say, at a conference. Um, so that's one, uh, Foster, that's one of the reasons that um, that I suggested, you know, and, and that I think is, is actually going to happen. We're going to have our next conference in Lisbon, not our next one, but, you know, in 2024, for mm -hmm. the um, anniversary of the um, Carnation Revolution. And hopefully, you know, we'll also kind of get better known within Portugal, right, among Portuguese historians there, you know, with that conference. Mm -hmm. Oh, that'll be great. Yeah. Now, I also wanted to ask you about another issue that you mentioned in the field, and that is the issue of Iberia still not being included in the broader European historiography, perhaps, as you mentioned, it's particularly an issue for the uh, scholars of Spain. So could you give us a bit of the history of why Iberia has so often been left out of that larger history? So this is more of a familiar story. You know, mm -hmm. the, the Portuguese-Spain um, bar barrier was sort of a surprise to us, but this is an old familiar story, right? Um, that, you know, really goes back to the early 20th century and, you know, the Spanish historian sense of Spain kind of starting on, you know, separating somehow from Europe, right? And, and so within Spanish historiography, there was a sense of, difference and inferiority and, you know, the sense that we've kind of gotten off the wrong track and that set a whole agenda, right, of uh, how do we explain that difference? How do we explain getting off, you know, the right track? Which, of course, those questions are inherently different, right, from what was happening in the broader um, European historiography. So it's hard to integrate yourself you know, or it's easy to be marginalized, I'll put it the other way, it's easy to be marginalized when you have a whole set of really kind of inward looking questions. You know, that has changed uh, within Spanish historiography. We all know, you know, like in the modern period, uh, David Ringrose's book, right, was an important, um, you know, an important sort of flag in, in terms of revisionism in political history, you know, people like Isabel Bordiel, talking about the liberal revolution in the 19th century. Um, you know, there's a lot more comparative work now on the Spanish Civil War, Julian Casanova. Um, other people have written, you know, sort of situated it in a more comparative framework. So there's a lot more work done within from Spanish historians themselves. But there is still, you know, there's still that sort of lack of response from the other side. You know, in other mm -hmm. words, <laughs> When you're reading the the European textbooks or the sort of broader comparative things, you know, Spain still tends to be, I'll just speak of the modern, I'll let, you know, Katie's talk about the early mind, but still, you know, either the site, either the citations are Raymond Carr, you know, from the 1970s, you know, like out of date uh, when Spain is mentioned at all, or, you know, it just really doesn't, you know, it just doesn't feature. It's still not kind of integrated. So I think, you know, the from the Spain, from the from the Spanish historiography side, we have made a huge effort to kind of move in that direction, but there hasn't been as much response um, you know, from the other side. 
Yeah, do you, I, do you I think, think this is an issue, uh, Katie? Sometimes it seems like in the early modern period, there is kind of more inclusion in the broader European story. But do you see this as an issue there too, as well? It is. It's still an, uh -huh. it's definitely an issue. Um, I think the the general framework that Pamela just laid out works for the early modern and the medieval as well, but with some 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 differences. Um, thinking of the early modern in particular, um, it's very hard to talk about, um, say, for example, European politics and diplomacy in the 16th century without dealing with Spain, right? Spain mm -hmm. is Spain's the big superpower. But by the time you get to the middle of the 17th century, it's a lot easier to just kind of not talk about it, right? So it, it depends a little bit about the when we're talking about, but there really, there is definitely beyond, I think, beyond talking about politics, beyond talking about diplomacy, things like that, there is often a tendency to, to not include not just Spain, but I'd say Portugal too, sort of Iberian perspectives or Iberian trends. Um, this is something that really comes out in some of the essays that we've, in, uh, that we've, our contributors have, have written for this, this um, collection that, and that really kind of outline it. Some, for example, some of the, are the works, the two essays that we have on, on gender and sexuality. So I'm speaking of the essays by Michelle Armstrong Partida and Alison Posca, they really like bring out the ways in which a lot of the work on gender, on women's history, on masculinity, on sexuality, hasn't it really it just so often it's very curious you just don't find spain portugal being mentioned at all um that there is a there is a often a kind of northern european default <laughs> setting that for some reason uh the the peninsula doesn't seem to factor in so i think it is a, a similar kind of of set of questions it might I mean, I'm not I'm not a medievalist, um, but I think it's perhaps even more pronounced in some ways for the medieval because medieval Iberia tends to be kind of there's a kind of like, oh, it's so different. It's so very different um, that it almost can't be talked about. It, it seems I mean, I know that's wrong. We all know that's wrong. But there is a kind of tendency to say, oh, 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 wow, that's so diverse. Oh, it's so multicultural. Oh, oh, we can't. That's not going to fit with our. French framework. So that's a little bit of an exaggeration, but I, I think the the larger framework is, is that sort of larger sketch is, is mostly true. Yeah, I, I noticed that too, particularly in the article uh, about the medieval period. Now, mm -hmm. um, sticking with you, Katie, another uh, boundary that, that you observed in this introduction is, is in the Iberian historiography between the histories of the metropoles, that is Spain and Portugal, and the colonies. Are there ways to include the colonies in Iberian history while also including the peninsula as part of Europe? I think that's a great question and a tricky one, right? Um, and it goes to the way that we're, we're trained and it goes to the way that we train our students. And yeah, I do think there are ways, but that the I mean, if there's, I'm not going to say there's a, there's not a firewall. It's not the same kind of thing as what mm -hmm. we saw in the historiography between Spain and Portugal. Um, but there are some, some curious divisions that one bumps into between Latin American history and history, the historiography that focuses in on the metropole. And that while 
those of us who are working mainly on the peninsula do tend to read around reasonably broadly in Latin American history as it connects to, you know, sort of what we're doing. Um, the same is not necessarily true of folks who are working in and training in Latin American history. Um, again, never speaking in absolutes, but it is something I have I've noticed. And it sometimes comes out in kind of funny ways. I mean, very remember very well um, uh, teaching a graduate seminar that had you know a, a sprinkling of European focused students and a sprinkling of uh, students focused on Latin America. And um, one of the Latin Americanists, colonial Latin Americanists said to me suddenly, wait, colonial Latin America, wait, that's the same thing as early modern Europe. And I was like, yes, <laughs> yes, same thing, same, same. And yes, that we need to, to consider the both together. So mm -hmm. um, the thing is that, so that's a matter of training, but it's also, it, it's, um, there are approaches that are working to have been to bring the two together, uh, right? So, and these are, are well established. So, when one thinks of Atlantic approaches, and it's all of the complexities associated with that, and the, you know the, the rise and and increasing importance of global approaches, those are ways that we can find a, a, you know, bridge the divide. Mm -hmm. Those aren't easy, though. Right. That that anyone who's who's tried to do an Atlantic project or tried to teach a, a truly Atlantic course will find, you know, just how slippery and just how um, tricky it is. Right. That sometimes those the old borders are there. They make things a little more manageable. Um, and so that's something that one has to, to fight against. Um, so cross training, learning to take these broader approaches. And I think also that one of the ways to to integrate uh, looking at colonial areas or co looking at colonies while looking at the peninsula and continue, co keeping up that connection to Europe is to truly do what, what's been happening more broadly, which is to provincialize Europe itself and decenter Europe in favor of or in, put it in closer connection with, with other approaches. Um, and I think Again, I think it's harder to do than it is to say, but I think that might be uh, a really profitable way of, of, of trying to, to bridge that gap. Now, if I can ask about one more <laughs> of these divisions and um, one that perhaps we've uh, already been somewhat guilty of in this uh, conversation, mm -hmm. but that is the temporal boundaries between the medieval and early modern uh, and then you also have between the early modern and modern periods. Do you think there's too much emphasis on these firm dividing lines, specific years like 1492 and 1808? And uh, if so, how might scholars begin to cross those lines? I do think there is too much uh, emphasis on on these dividing line dates. Um, on, again, though, there's a you know, there, there is a logic to them and they have a kind of utility in terms of sort of making a coherent narrative, making a manageable sort of breaking time into chunks that are manageable and intelligible, but they are artificial and they do in many ways, they occlude more than they illuminate, right? Mm -hmm. um, 
know, this is something I thought really came out in Andrew Devereaux's essay for the collection, right? His essay on putting the Iberian Peninsula into connection with making understanding as part of the larger Mediterranean and making the connection between uh, Iberian history and Mediterranean history. And one of the things he points out is that an emphasis on these kinds of dates, he's focusing in on 1492 um, in this case, right? Does, it's useful, but it, it, there's a lot that it hides, right? It, it includes the connection, the continued connection with the Mediterranean. It includes the, you know, the activity in the Pacific, right? These are things that we don't notice if we're focusing in on 1492 as some kind of great break. I think it also, Enema points this out as well. It, it includes Portugal and it assumes a narrative, a historical narrative that is Castilian and Aragonese and sort of imports it into Portuguese history. And that's really a problem. And the other thing it does is, and I think this is, this is another really important point he makes, is that um, it really kind of reifies the so-called Reconquista, right? That that very problematic concept with talking about and structuring um, Iberian medieval history around this, around a narrative of constant conflict, a narrative of uh, so-called you know rec reclamation or recapture, right? So to to emphasize 1492 is to in many ways to to reify, to set up that that long established but highly problematic narrative, um, and so you know, trying to look beyond it, trying to to maybe de-emphasize it, um, has a lot of value for for many of us. What do you think, Pamela? Mm -hmm. You know, when I'm thinking about the the modern period, I mean, my first thought is that this is not this is not an issue that's particularly exaggerated in Iberian history. I think it's a general problem, right, of how we organize historical eras, whether you're talking about French history or, you know, Italian or, or Spanish. So I didn't think of it as, you know, as uh, unique, right, to our case, you know, and that doesn't, you know, I absolutely agree with everything that Katie said, you know, that's the specific version of how, you know, setting these dates um, impacts our own field. And the, and the, in terms of 1808, I think actually that's one of the dates that has been um, most, I don't know, effectively, you know, deconstructed. You know, there's a lot of work. <clears throat> and here I, I, I wanted to say something actually about, you know, Latin America and Spanish historiography in the modern period, because I think there's something to be said, you know, even though um, the modern period is, you know, marked by, by the independence, right, of Latin America, one of the one of the trends, right, in um, modern history has been to has been to sort of uh, keep the empire, right, as part of Spanish history, as part of the metropolitan Spanish history throughout the 19th century and now into the 20th century with Morocco. So that has been actually, you know, a recent trend. Whereas before there was this sense that, you know empire ended, right, you know, in 1824. And then after that, it didn't really play much of a role. So that's actually, you know, I think a positive trend, right. Um, and there have been, you know, there are people, you know, Chris Smith Noara, too, um, is one of the core historians of the modern period, right, who really tried to, to establish, 
you know, important links both with Latin Americanists and uh, especially in, you know, the history of the Antilles, right? Which, you know, he's one of the people that made the argument that this, that the Antilles at Cuba, especially is an important, important part of, um, you know, Spanish history in the modern period. So that's, you know, something I want to say, but, but that point is also relevant for 1808 because that whole period of the revolutionary era, right, has really been integrated well, I think, in terms of from the Latin American side and from the Spanish side. You know, this is the the moment of these, you know, global revolutions. You can think of Scott Eastman's book, right, which mm -hmm. talks about, you know, the the discourses both in Spanish America and in in Spain. And so there's a lot of, there's a lot of works like that. I think that, that integrate both in that go before 1808 to look at the origins, right. And that then, you know, carry those into the after period. So that I, I feel like is not as big of an issue in the modern period. What, what I do feel in terms of temporal problems is just this sort of growing presentism, you know, the, the tendency for people to focus on, you know, more and more recent periods. You know, I think the 19th century has become a kind of wasteland um, of historians. There's a few people working on it. There's a few groups, but, you know, the vast majority of people now seem to be working on the Franco regime, right? You know, when that entered into history as opposed to political science, you know, people are really moving towards the 20th century. So I think that is what I see as the biggest temporal issue. That, that's a very good point. Yeah, the the I think both the 18th and the the 19th century seem to be a bit uh, neglected in the Iberian uh, historiography. Um, I know I really miss uh -huh. David Ringrose. Right, David Ringrose yeah. was a, a very unusual person. Actually, I mean, he was a lovely, unusual person in many ways. But as a scholar, you know, he uh, linked the 18th and 19th century right very explicitly. Yeah, okay, so let's take a short pause and uh, then we'll turn to some of the big issues that emerged in the articles uh, in the special edition itself. Welcome back. Five of the seven articles in this special issue focus on gender and race. So clearly those are two very important themes in Iberian studies today. So I wanted to start with you, Katie, um, because women's history has had a long uh, place among historians of medieval and early modern Iberia. But how are scholars now taking the field in new directions with interdisciplinary approaches from the field of queer studies, for example? That's a great question. And the, our um, contributors working on uh, gender and sexuality did a really great job, I thought, of laying out the field um, in both medieval, in the case of Michelle Armstrong, Petita, and early modern, that's, that's Allison. What was interesting for me is the amount of overlap that they found a very sort of their their assessment of the established you know the field as as it has developed up to this point and then where it's going there was a lot of similarity which I I found really interesting and in both cases um, our authors noted a really 
uh, a good move away from prescriptive literature, right? That that older modes of approaching women's history, gender history, history of sexuality, um, often focused in on prescriptive literature rules <laughs> about how people were to behave or how they were to think about themselves. And there was value to that, right? But that it doesn't, when you look at a law code or something, that only tells you about norms, perhaps, uh, rather than how people are actually behaving or thinking about themselves. So the move away from prescriptive literature um, and towards other kinds of sources, I think, has been a very fruitful one. A kind of uh, move towards interdisciplinary uh, approaches that are coming from, from other fields, including queer studies, has moved um, a lot of folks who are working in this area towards thinking about agency and agency in in an increasingly sophisticated mode, right? Uh, agency of um, action and taking active part in systems in which um, it was not always easy to, to immediately see the participation of women or, or other, uh, other groups. So political agency or, or taking part in, in markets and, and other economic activities, professional activities. So um, agency as a kind of, of approach and theme, um, but also intersectional uh, approaches, right? So complicating questions of gender, complicating questions of sexuality by looking at the places where they intersect with other aspects of, of medieval and early modern life. So the ideas about race or ideas about ethnicity or um, social status or, or other kinds of uh, points of contact. So this has, I think, been very fruitful and as kinds of, a, you know, coming from, from other, informed by other area studies or, or approaches. Um, so this, I think, is a, there's a lot of, of a kind of exciting action um, happening uh, in this areas. Both of them do a lot of interesting work, too, in laying out where there's a, there's, there are sort of gaps, where there's a lot of room for development. Um, if I were wondering about how to think of think up new a dissertation topic, for example, I would be looking at these essays, right? Because they do really excellent work in terms of pointing out, here's a big hole in the literature, right? Here are things that nobody is doing. And, and so things that they look to are thinking about sexuality and gender identity in more than just binaries, right? Looking to find beyond the binaries of male and female. Both of them point out that there's been um, very little work uh, in both sort of medieval and early modern areas in terms of looking at masculinities. And this I find absolutely fascinating, right? That this is this huge, enormous uh, area that's really barely been poked at. Um, so uh, that, that I think is gonna be a very exciting uh, thing to look at rereading our sources right so the what's called queering the archive right taking taking a queer studies approach to to the sources and to the materials many of which were are have been read time and time again but they, they turn very different they come come yet some very different uh uh, kinds of perspectives when you take a, uh, a kind of queer studies approach to inquisition sources, if you want, or um, episcopal 
um, records, parish records or Episcopal trials, things like that. And then taking, and this is something that comes out of Michelle Armstrong Partita's essay in particular, taking the, the turn toward an increasingly global Middle Ages is also a, an approach that I think is we're going to see more of and is, is turning into some very interesting new directions, I think, um, that middle, the Middle Ages as a term is a problematic one. Medieval is a problematic term, right? This comes out, it's generated from, it's developed in context of European history. So what does it mean if we start looking at a global Middle Ages or taking the terms and idea of the medieval and putting it into other contexts? And what can that do um, when we put a uh, medieval Spain or a medieval Portugal into a global medieval context, right? So I think there's a, a, a lot of really exciting uh, developments to come. Well, thanks. Uh, there are a lot of great uh, ideas for research projects right there. <laughs> <laughs> now, Pamela, I, I want to ask you the same thing about the modern period. Um, how are these transnational and queer approaches influencing the study of gender in this field? I guess I'll start by just, you know, kind of stepping back a little bit from, from that question and looking at some of the, the differences, um, you know, in in some of the different challenges in the modern period. I think that the, the sense of having to, you know, simply recover women's history, you know, recover women's voices, women's experiences, that, you know, there's still some of that sense, you know, that we haven't even got there yet, if that makes sense. You know, mm -hmm. um, it's not like we're ready to sort of leapfrog to the next level, you know. So there's a lot of, and I think, you know, that's partly reflected in, you know, after the end of the dictatorship and the first generations of historians working on the modern period, you know, most of them were really focused on, you know, social class and workers' movements and not as many, especially historians, who were focused on women's history and gender. You know, women's history was not really a big field. You know, people working on women's um, historical issues were more likely to be in other departments, you know, and, and in other disciplines. So, you know, there was sort of, I think while there are new trends coming in and Jessica's article, you know, does a good job, I think of saying, of, of showing how there's these kind of parallel moves. On the one hand, you've got these new trends, you know, uh, as you said, transnational, uh, queer history, um, um, you know, a little bit of trans uh, history, uh, we're starting to see, you know, so we see some new trends. But on the other hand, there's still a lot of work to be done in terms of, uh, you know, identifying women's agency in places we didn't think it existed. You mm -hmm. know, so one of the new trends in the modern period is to question the kind of notion that because Spain was a Catholic country and, you know, Catholicism ruled everything that that meant that women were, you know, basically, uh, you know, just oppressed by the church and oppressed by religion, you know, kind of getting back to Katie's point about prescriptive, right, you know, the, the prescriptive um, uh, literature, and that, for example, it, defines Aurora Morfio's first book, like her first book about the Franco regime is very much about how, you know, the regime 
uh, imposes right and keeps women from doing all sorts of things. And that's useful to know, but a lot of the development since then is that is, you know, showing how women became mobilized within the Catholic church and how there's spaces for women to, you know, have, you know, agency. And, and can we talk about Catholic feminism, uh, you know, even though they're not feminist. So all, all of these kinds of things, I would say, you know, have been part of still this, you know, desire to kind of recover women's experiences, their, you know, their mobilization in modern society, you know, at the same time that, you know, we have um, these new trends. The other thing I would say is that a lot of the, you know, a lot of the new um, approaches and methodologies tend to be interdisciplinary. And I think Jessica points that out as well. You know, they, they're, they're happening more in other disciplines than in history. And, you know, sadly, for many reasons, sadly, but, you know, Aurora was kind of a bridge, you know, between historians and people in working in other disciplines. You know, the collections that she put together brought um, scholars from cultural studies, right, and other areas together uh, with historians, you know, so she, you know, she was in a women's and gender studies uh, uh, department. Actually, I'm not sure if it's a department or a program, but, you know, she, she was really an interdisciplinary scholar at heart, you know, and she brought scholars working in other disciplines to the attention of historians, right, in the way that she brought her work together. And so that is something that we're really going to miss as well, you know, among all the things that we're, you know, we miss. So, so I would say that, you know, historians still have some work to do, you know, in terms of integrating some of these new methodologies and theoretical approaches but that it's there, but it's not necessarily yet been done, being done by historians. Now, I wanted to turn now to the theme of race and to go back to you, Katie, conceptions of race in the colonies in the early modern period have long been of interest to historians, but they've received less attention in the Iberian Peninsula itself. What are some ways that scholars are now studying race uh, in Spain and Portugal? Of course, the, the, the essay that, that we include for the early modern here, it's, this is Erin Rowe's contribution. And I think what she's done in this essay is really exciting um, because, you know, race in early modern Spain, early modern Portugal is a area as a kind of focus, an area subject for inquiry is something that's been really taking off in some super interesting ways. Um, and the 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 kinds of the sophistication of the approaches is is increasingly exciting uh, as something that to, to keep an eye on, and so one of the things I think she does here is points to ways in which scholars working on race in the peninsula for the early modern period are are doing a number of things right that looking at ideas about race difference essentially right without presupposing modern concepts right modern or contemporary ideas ideas that tend to be linked often not fully in fully articulated ways but are there they're really there right tend to be linked to um assumptions coming out of the enlightenment assumptions that are linked to the nation right so the work that she points to um, on race as trying to get trying to get to pre-modern ideas that don't 
presume these structures, it's to presume these contexts. Um, that's really exciting. It's hard to do too, right? And and that mm. makes it some of the like if it's hard to do, it's an exciting area. <laughs> Right. If, if it were easy, why wouldn't we, we would already have done it, right? So I find um, the kinds of work she points to on, on about that area really interesting. She also points out that a lot of some of the most exciting work is using frameworks uh, for talking about race and thinking about race that might initially be uncomfortable for scholars who are trained in the peninsula, I mean, by which I mean trained in Iberian history, Spanish history, Portuguese history. So what ways can we use frameworks that have been developed in context of, for example, US history or the British or French Atlantic, that there is a kind of tendency to oh, no, 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 that doesn't apply. Those are different dynamics that's not going to work for us. But her point is that, yes, there is that impulse, but that there are questions that are raised that will be fruitful, or there are, you know, ways of thinking or structures that while it's not a perfect, don't perfectly map on, that's not the point, right? Read the us other literature and find the things, the nuggets that you can apply. So that that she's seeing some really fruitful approaches that are doing that, which again is kind of uncomfortable, right? It's hard because you're you're there, it doesn't easily map. And then the this other area that she points to um, where there's a, there's some exciting work getting done these days is scholars looking at race in the early modern period in Portugal, in Spain, who are bringing to bear approaches developed in other uh, areas. And it's her main, mainly she points to the kinds of conversations that are coming up by putting Iberian history into conversation with black studies and especially centering these approaches that center the, the black subject, right? Center that, uh, those questions center, those people, those approaches that, that really has this interesting way of turning questions around to, I guess, back to that question of, of looking beyond prescriptive literature in some ways, right? Looking beyond prescriptive literature and looking to the experience of the people at the center of these systems and these, these, these questions, right? Who is the racialized person um, and how do they experience I, these, these, the kinds of systems in which pre-modern race is developed, ideas about race is developed? So, Aaron's, Aaron's essay, I think, is also going to be one of these, you know, must reads for students thinking about projects or students seeking to get a handle on a lot of the questions that, that are going to be, I think, at the forefront of a lot of coming, coming study. Absolutely. And let me just mention that a while back, we did record a podcast with Aaron Rowe about Black Saints uh, in Spain. So, Listeners might want to go back and listen to that one as well to get kind of a model for for that uh, kind of work that she's doing. Now, Pamela, I wanted to ask you again about race in the modern period, because that seems to have been a subject that's uh, perhaps even more neglected in the Iberian Peninsula than for the early modern period. So why do you think that has been and how are scholars today 
looking to uncover the importance of race to um, modern Iberian history. We were lucky to get um, Josh Good to be able, you know, to write this article because he's been, you know, uh, a central part of that transition, really. You know, when he wrote his book on, you know, racial thinking in Spain in the late 19th century, it was very unusual. You know, it was very, it sort of stood out in a field in which, you know, the sort of common sense was that modern Spain didn't have a concept of race. You know, uh, they didn't, they weren't racist. You know, racism and race really didn't apply. It wasn't, you know, a dynamic um, within modern Spanish history. So, you know, there was a long way to go, right, <laughs> from from there. So what I think about his article that I really find exciting is that he both shows, you know, that there's been a lot of work done. And again, he brings in a lot of interdisciplinary, right? He brings in a lot of theorizing from other disciplines to help. But he also kind of points, you know, towards what still needs to be done. And I think that the important distinction he makes, uh, you know, in kind of conceptualizing is that, you know, we need to move from the idea of race as, you know, a stable category to the concept of racial thought, right? So racial thought is, you know, thinking about, you know, these forms of identity uh, ethnicity, you know, national, um, uh, physical, there's all sorts of ways of thinking about it, right? But, you know, it doesn't consolidate into, you know, um, into these stable categories that either Spain has them or they that, that they don't have them. And so he's able to show, for example, you know, there's a fascinating section on, you know, discussions of philo and anti-Semitism, right? in in modern Spanish history. And so you think, oh, the Jews are gone, right? So why are we even talking about this, right? So it's exactly the point, right? Is that is that you realize that once you move from, you know, are there Jewish people in Spain and you know what, you know, what does that do to the social structure? You move from that to, you know, what why are people talking about Semitism and anti-Semitism and, and, and proto-Semitism when there aren't any Jews at all, right? It's the racial thought itself, right, that is helping to define hierarchies and categories. And so I think, you know, that is, is you know, one of the big ways to sort of unblock, right, what, where we've been before um, in terms of the peninsula. And there hasn't been much work on this yet, but, you know, I think there, he points to the idea that, you know, we're just starting to develop the tools to talk about internal racial thought, right? Um, the different ethnicities and ethnic groups in Spain. How does the distinction, right, between different groups within the peninsula constitute a domain of racial thinking, right? And we haven't really, you know, we're starting to think about that, but, you know, there's a lot more to be done um, in that, in, you know, uh, along those lines. So I think, um, you know, the neglect was basically that there was one notion of what race and racial thinking was, which was the Nazi one, you know, the biological race. And since Spain, you know, didn't have that, uh, didn't have that particular view, it was viewed as a kind of non-racialized society and a non-racialized, you know, set of discourses. And, you know, we're, I think we are beyond that. Um, but uh, again, this is a great article to get some ideas about what you know, for dissertation topics, right, what you might want to work on in the future and what kind of resources in terms of theoretical models that come, you know, both outside of history and inside that you might want to draw on. 
Yeah, absolutely. Well, uh, actually brings me to my last question, um, which is for both of you, because we've discussed all kinds of different boundaries within the field here, but also um, a lot of potential bridges and new ideas for research um, within the field. But I was wondering, you know, which ones really emerged to you as you were working on this project as the most important? Um, to put it another way, if you had a graduate come into your office looking for a research project, what would you say to that person is the most pressing new direction for Iberian history to take? Well, the first thing I would say, obviously, is to go read this entire set of, <laughs> of, uh, right. of essays, because I think that um, I think all of our contributors have done amazing work in in pointing out some some important new directions. I think that if it, I had a student coming to me looking for a research project, wanting to work in the early modern, since I, I can't really speak to the medieval, I'm not qualified. I think I would say that rather than than a, a pressing new direction exactly, I would I would speak to um, trying to take their whatever the, the direction the area of interest they're 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 already tending toward you don't come into somebody's office without some idea right right um, am i interested in politics or religion or, or economics or you know ecology or what have you right um whatever it is that that the project needs to be designed in such a way that at least somewhere some of the boundaries that we've pointed to are going to, to, to find a way to start crossing or to bridge those boundaries. Mm -hmm. And I would argue that that projects that place Iberian history into a wider framework. And I would suggest not necessarily the European one. Provincializing Europe is a really important thing. And also, frankly, if you look at the way that the job market is, one would be do well to to think beyond Europe. And break down the categories as much as possible. Um, and one of the things I've been thinking about, I was thinking about this, just these kinds of questions is where I'm seeing, for example, some really interesting work that, that draws on Iberian sources, draws on Iberian history, but doesn't necessarily, it makes the connection to Europe, but doesn't necessarily put Europe at the center is for example, using putting Iberian history into dialogue with African history. Right now, be that North African history, and here you might think of the connections, the larger Mediterranean connection, connection to to North Africa, both in the early modern and the modern periods. But I'm thinking also of African history in other dimensions. So, for example, West African history. There's been a really interesting publication that came out last year, um, 2021, from Oxford University Press, and this is a Inquisition trial record of a woman named Crispina Perez from Guinea-Bissau, who was tried by the Portuguese Inquisition, in fact, brought back to Lisbon. And it's an enormous trial record, it's only 400 folios. But it's absolutely fascinating in that it uh, really gets at West African history in ways that many other sources don't, right? Um, human relationships, beliefs and practices, uh, merchants, networks, things like that. So there's a there's a way to do Iberian history that is going to connect to to larger things. And I think 
the sources are going to be useful for that. So rethinking approaches in, in that way would be something I would suggest. And I believe uh, Andrew uh, Devereaux's article had some suggestions as well about that. Uh, Absolutely. He certainly uh, the, the connections with Africa. Yeah. What do you think, Pamela? I only can echo, you know, what Katie said. I think, you know, the basic starting point is exactly to, you know, think about how your possible research topics can cross some of those boundaries. You know, I think that's the best way to put it, right? You know, whether we're talking about, you know, if you're working on the Franco dictatorship or the transition, you know, in Spain, what about, you know, if you put Portugal into that conversation, that, you know, comparative conversation, what happens? And even, you know, even without insisting that people have to do, you know, significant primary research in both, you know, in both cases, because that's hard for a graduate student. You know, if we talk about graduate student topics, you know, that's often what, you know, is intimidating about doing any kind of international or transnational re research topic for graduate students, right, is to really have to master two archives and so on. But even to just put it in that framework is already, you know, a huge step forward, right? And you can rely on um, published material in order to, you know, help you make some of those comparisons. It's really just the the formulation, right, that this is not just a kind of, you know, a single event or, you know, or movement or whatever you're studying, you know, but it's going to be in a larger context. And I also would echo what Katie said, that I think, you know, we can also kind of let go of this I don't know, it's still this uh, inferiority complex that it always has to be Europe, you know, and I'm guilty of that too. It always has to be Europe that we're, you know, that we're a part of, you know, in order to sort of bring Iberia, right, up to that level. Instead, you know, letting go of that a little bit, right, and, and saying, okay, you know, we can also look out and see why isn't there more comparison on, you know, Spain and Mexico in the 1930s? so many, you know, so many obvious things to compare there. And yet there just isn't that much, right? On the anti-clericalism of those two societies, for you know, just for example. And then I guess one other thing I would, I would say in terms of thinking about topics is also the anti-presentism, you know, going back to earlier periods again, you know, not just, not just sort of landing where everybody seems to be working these days, you know, kind of, you know, stepping back and trying to find some new topics, you know, new uh, themes, but then, you know, think about how you're going to look at them through new eyes. You don't have to, like going back to the 19th century doesn't mean you're going to go back to the arguments about the liberal revolution again, right? You know, that, that's been, you know, more or less resolved, but there's new questions that you can ask about that. You know, one example that came up for me recently, I wrote an article on the historiography of the Civil War, the Spanish Civil War in the 1930s. And one of the things that struck me is that, you know, most of the work on anarchists, the anarchist revolution, were all published, you know, like a couple of decades ago, or more than a couple of decades ago, you know, in the 1980s, it was part of this sort of initial labor history, you know, recovery of workers voices. But there, but, but, those studies are mostly linked into a specific set of questions about, you know, about worker revolution and whether the anarchists res were responsible for, you know, for the defeat of the Republic and how much are they, you know, how much was this a drag on the blah, blah, blah. So there's a certain set of questions, but 
you know, now we can go back and it's time to reevaluate the revolution, not from the perspective of, you know, did it help the Republic lose or win or, you know, what did it, but, but just as a sort of zone of experimentation, right? Um, a zone of experimentation without those kind of external, um, you know, judgments that we were making several decades ago. So my point is that there's plenty of topics that you might think, oh, people have worked on these, but, you know, bring new perspectives. Um, and those perspectives can come from, you know, other um, national historiographies as well. All right. Well, thank you both so much for coming on the program. Um, it's been a fascinating conversation and I think very inspirational for uh, all of those of us who are in the field of Iberian studies and um, definitely a motivation to go read those articles in the fascinating and I think very important um, special issue that you, that you have in the bulletin. So thank you. Thank, thank you, you so Foster. Much. Thank you for listening to this episode of Historias. For additional information about our guest and a list of suggested readings, please visit our website at historiaspodcast.org. Also be sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, or Spotify, and to follow us on Facebook or Twitter so that you can be notified of new episodes. <laughs>